Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And once again, we are returning in the beginning of season eight to bring you all the news that's fit to print, but we don't print Yay. it. <laughs> no, we bring it to you in soothing vocal form. With a so gentle, that you can classical it. music. So when the news gets too stressful, you can just close your <laughs> eyes and relax. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and address the piano in the room. <laughs> My wonderful little daughter has her piano lesson right now. And so you guys get a soundtrack to the Travel Medicine Podcast show. Usually only available to our Patreon listeners where I don't edit. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> here, here, here's a taste. <laughs> yes, if you enjoy absolutely. unedited versions of the podcast where you can hear Santosh swear like a sailor and hear <laughs> gentle, soothing piano in the background, consider donating to us on Patreon. Maybe I'll put those up. That's... I don't know what he's talking about, people. I clean as a whistle. <laughs> yeah, I by the time we make it to this. print, you filthy animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, if someone would allow me to actually throw in a swear word every nope. now and again. Disney Santosh <laughs> for life. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. So, as you may have guessed from my incredibly serious tone, it's an mm. alternate week. Our it first is. alternate week of the new season. <laughs> and you know what happens in alternate weeks, old audience. A new audience you're about to find out. Mm-hmm. It's time for another everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club. Yay! Ooh. Oh, those Kermit arms needed a good shake. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've Kermit armed. It's been three months. It has. It has. Yeah, yeah. So it is around time for a pandemic update, uh, which will be mixed into our Journal Clubs. So all the stories we're bringing you tonight relate to two COVID except for one because why not <laughs> and a little mini blurb I hope but I don't oh, know that's that right not all of them count Santosh you said there was some very exciting stuff to celebrate this week people won prizes chocolatey prizes yeah <laughs> no 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 these were solid gold so you can't eat well you gotta see can eat these let me tell you about the prizes <laughs> so Press release on October 4th, 2021 has, uh, brings us the new awardees of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Well, which is it? <laughs> 
So this is actually both. It's really great. They, they, they could have called this one physiology and medicine. It has been given jointly to David Julius and Ardem Pataputian. So Dr. Julius and Dr. Pataputian are two people who have separately worked on looking at how our bodies perceive the world. So actually working on our senses. So we know, Josh, for instance, that like, you know, you touch something, it's hot. Oh, how is that? Right. Yeah. And it turns out that all the way back in the era of Descartes, right, there were these philosophical envisioned threads that would connect the skin with the brain. This was before anybody understand nerves. So 1944, Dr. Joseph Erlanger and Herbert Gasser actually won the Nobel Prize for different types of sensory fibers. So they actually discovered the actual fibers that you and I dissected in anatomy class. Fast forward all the way to the late 90s, and David Julius, first of all, was at the University of California, San Francisco, and he worked to find out TRPV1, the actual sensor, the protein sensor, which sits on our cell membrane and actually transmits the feeling, the, the original tiny, tiny little molecular signal of out, that's hot, it hurts. And this little guy, Trip, Trip V1, is a temperature sensitive uh, channel, okay, in the cell membrane. It opens up when you get above 43 degrees Celsius. You can't just bake your cells, right? Because, you know, <laughs> it's called a fever. Yeah, exactly. But guess what he was able to use as a substitute in order to tell these little sensors that, like, oh, there's heat and it hurts? What, what did he use? Uh, baboon spinal fluid. No, 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 no. Some of your favorite stuff. He used red hot chili peppers. He's a California boy. Oh, I wish they all could be California boys. (laughs) Well, so he took capsaicin and he actually used that stimulation for the nerve cells to actually help discover this little channel, the you know TRPV1, and a family of other uh, cell membrane channels that uh, also that the fundamental building blocks of telling us, ouch, this is why we hurt. Now, all the way down in La Jolla, uh, Dr. Ardem Pataputian, who went ahead and looked at the same type of molecular sensors for pressure. So how do you feel that there's pressure going on? He had a beautiful breakthrough when he found that the piezo 2 ion channel is the channel that opens and closes in response to mechanical force on the cell. And again, the basic molecular fundamental blocks about why, Josh, when you put like poke your skin, you put your pressure on it, then your brain goes, oh, there's pressure. Trip V1 for temperature and heat and pain, and Piezo 2 for touch and proprioception. These two researchers came together to jointly split the Nobel Prize for their contributions in their work to teach us how our bodies sense the world. So, totally awesome. Neat. Yeah. Yay for Nobel Prize winners. Thank you guys for your contributions. I'll give you another story about sensing before we launch into pandemic updates. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this one involves one of the things you enjoy, which is CRISPR. And yes. it's CRISPR helping people see CRISPR. Not like uh, <laughs> the genetic editing, but to see more sharply. Yeah, like with the ER at the end, like more crisply. Yes. Yes. So a new gene editing experiment lets patients with a very specific kind of vision loss actually see color again. The very first time researchers worked with CRISPR in this particular way, and we're talking about Lieber congenital amaurosis, or LCA, a pretty Mm. severe form of vision impairment. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to remember, was this... Uh, mitochondrial? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I'm not sure if it's a mitochondrial. It's 
It's an eye disorder that primarily affects the retina, detecting okay. light and color. And most people born with this have severe visual impairment that begins in infancy, mm-hmm. although it tends to be stable. It doesn't really get too worse, but it has a lot of associations with photophobia or sensitivity to light, involuntary okay. movements of the eye, extreme farsightedness. So the reason these people have so much vision problems is that the muscles in your eye that are supposed to contract and expand to act as the camera lens that let yes. light in mm-hmm. uh, move much more slowly than normal or may not respond to light at all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So just to, you know, for a background, you've got uh, genes in here and, and I was wrong, Josh, by the way, it's not mitochondrial, but you've got genes involved in phototransduction. So how, you know, the light enters the eye and then converts to electrical signals. And then the little, the actual cilia and our rods and cones are types of cilia. They're adapted cilia. So we've got actually a smattering of genes. Um, looks like there is at least 14 different mutations that can lead to this disease. They all kind of have the same phenotype, but they come under this umbrella of uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis. Now, due to this progressive loss of vision, these people are considered legally blind, which means they can still see you know, m- vague movement or very pale versions of colors, but they're okay. functionally blind. They're, they're not going out driving. Uh, they do need a lot of assistance to get around. So okay. this is a very small study. And when I say small, I mean, it's just seven patients in the study who volunteered to let doctors modify their DNA by mm-hmm. injecting CRISPR directly into cells that are still in their bodies. Okay, so this is huge, right? Because you're no longer talking about, like in stem cell transplants, right, where you do autologous stem cell transplantation with modified cells, you actually take those cells out of the body, you change them, you grow them up in cell culture, and then you give them back. This is using the the enzyme and the guide RNA and putting those substrates right into where you want it to work and just that's it like that's the last step this is how we get both superheroes and mad scientists (laughs) injecting things injecting genetically altering things directly into the body no this is i mean this is like early super serum yeah yeah Yeah. so we're we're this close to captain america santo (laughs) all right cool um So of the seven, two of them can now see colors for the first time in years and actually recognize shapes and light much better and regained even some peripheral vision. Most of these study, this was more of a human interest study. They didn't really give a ton about what was done, but we have seen CRISPR come up more and more in all these journal clubs to treat disorders ranging from sickle cell disease to possibly cancer. But all of those experiments, as you noted, Santosh, involve taking cells out of the body, tweaking them around, and then putting them back in. But you can't do that for visual diseases because cells from the retina can't be removed and then just injected back into the eye. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, the retina is a lot like most of our brain. As far as we understand it, once you lose patches of retina or rods and cones on the retina, regeneration right now for us is next to impossible. It certainly doesn't happen naturally. So you can't take a rod or a cone cell out of the the eye and then just get it back into where it was because the architecture is so precise that it just, it it wouldn't work. It wouldn't hook up properly and it wouldn't be able to communicate ultimately with the optic nerve, which is what you you can do is genetically modify a harmless adenovirus to Uh ferry the CRISPR gene editor, the little toolkit and Mm -hmm. infuse billions, billions (laughs) and billions of modified viruses. Not what Carl Sagan sounded like at all. the a single eye in each patient uh just in case something went wrong they didn't want to completely knock out these people's vision if it you know all went wahoonie shaped 
Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Once the CRISPR was inside the retinal cells, the idea was that it would cut out the genetic mutation causing the disease and restoring vision by reactivating the dormant cells. So basically a factory reset. Have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? (laughs) But this time with the right code. And they followed the patients for about three to nine months. um, And it worked in about... Five of the seven, the ones right. it didn't work in could have been because their dose was too low or perhaps their vision was too damaged. But we don't really know because the person who got the lowest dose began reporting improvement about four to six weeks after the procedure. And the one who got the highest dose improved enough to show improvement on uh, a test like navigating a maze. So none of them, and I want to emphasize, none of them have regained normal vision. They are all still walking around functionally blind, but some of them are a little bit more functional than others. I think a lot of people will tell you, uh, those who are differently sighted, you know, if, if they have visual impairment, that that type of gain, though, is the world. Like, it's it's so important in order to help them, you know, that little bit more function is super important. Now, th- you're absolutely right, Josh, about you know, this was a not a unique case, but it's an interesting case study because you have a disease where the gene mutation really affects a sequestered single area of the body. You can do an intravitreal uh, or or sometimes even an intraretinal, but you, you put the injection in the vitreous humor, the jelly that fills up the eye, and you know that your vector and all your other stuff, like it won't go anywhere else. It'll just go to the nearest cells, which are just retinal cells, and then the other ones on the inside of the eyeball. And you can target, you can have very strict dosing that can sit in there. And then the final piece here is that you have genes that you can go after specifically. So you you know that these are monogenic diseases and you can target that specific gene once you've gone through the patient's genome and said, here's the problem, this is what the repair template will look like. So all of these things still have to be in place in order for this kind of technology to be used. If you have something that causes a systemic disorder, for instance, head to toe or in a large organ like a kidney or a liver, I don't think that this would work. That is the uh, first of our kind of breakthroughs. And now let's get into the rest of the journal club. Santosh, let's go viral. Like Taylor Swift? What? <laughs> Have I finally converted you to be a lover of Tay-Tay? I, I, uh, it's been eight seasons, and um, I have to confess that I... Well, I know you, you know, had bad blood. <laughs> Josh, I had this blank space. Um, and now, right now, I'm going to go ahead and write her name. And it, it, it was National Coming Out Day very recently here in the United States. This is not at all the same as the struggles that like the LGBTQ community have to go through or anything like that. But yes, I, I'm confessing and coming out as a Tay-Tay fan. I always have been. And I'm sorry that I hid this from you for so long. But more importantly, Tay-Tay goes viral, just like viruses go viral. That could have only happened in my wildest dreams. Look what you made me do. Now it's time to shake it off. I should have known you were trouble when you walked in. I can't even get one in. You just rattled them all off. That's fantastic. I did something bad. My turn now? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll let it be okay. our song. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Julia. Oh, I should have said no. <laughs> okay, sorry. So tell me about this this study. I can't. We just we're gonna have to stop recording for at least half an hour while I listen to all of these songs in a row right now. <laughs> all right. Okay. Let me tell you about this study because. Absolutely all of those songs that you named have, you know, gone viral. They have made it, you know, their way into our hearts. They have infected us. And 
this is something that we always say, right? It's it's exploded. It's like an epidemic, you know, it's it's everywhere. But the truth of the matter is, Josh, that we never knew the kind of the kinetics, like how actually a catchy tune can spread. But there were social scientists and mathematical scientists, uh, one of whom, Dr. Dora Rosati, uh, who is the lead author of this beautiful study at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. And what she said was, hey, you know what? We have the mathematical tools to look at a pandemic or an epidemic. Do you think we could apply the same model to you know, viral songs and actually see if these songs spread like an epidemic. And Josh, the answer was yes. <laughs> Can I be excited about this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you can catch some mathematical fever. Oh. <laughs> and uh, yes, the, the only solution is more cowbell. yeah so they had a database 1.4 billion song downloads okay and this was a discontinued service it was called mix radio they grabbed the top thousand songs in the uk between 2007 and 2014 and they looked at how well a standard model of epidemic disease okay fits it this the song downloads over time and Josh, what was uh, what was the measure that they used? What's the what's the coefficient that you're supposed to use for like a virus? Do you remember it? Or not? Yeah, right, exactly. So basic reproduction number, R naught. And there are other Rs. There's RT, which is reproduction over time and, and all these others. But that basic reproduction number is our baseline for saying how quickly a disease, specifically an infectious disease, can reproduce in a community um, where, where you assume the population has zero immunity, right? So where, where you've never been infected with this before, right? So they used a calculated R naught, and they fit this model over genres of music. And Josh, this is really beautiful. They were able to publish this in the proceedings of the Royal Society, A, Mathematical and Physical Sciences. And Josh, Josh, what was the highest R naught? Which which genre had the highest R naught? Um, uh, yeah, I feel like it's got to be pop. Oh, you, you know, country. What? <laughs> so the United Kingdom, right? So th- there's actually oh, country. To... No, <laughs> so okay. Uh, we'll start where you started. Pop actually had an R naught of 35. That's pretty impressive. Okay, rock and punk that you talked about R naught of 129. Okay. What other uh, genres do you think would, would go viral out there? Well, hip hop. Hip hop and rap, 310. Okay. Are not. And then the biggest one, the one where like you can't get it out of your mind. So you got a boogie. Commercials. <laughs> Those weren't included on here. Unfortunately, there weren't commercial jingles on the, on the uh, mixed radio. No, electronica. What? You know, the all that stuff are not josh are not so i said 35 129 310 for rap hip-hop the are not for electronica like how much it worms into your brain and infects you the are not with 3430 like by far and away the highest are not was electronica and dance (laughs) i don't know how to feel about that yeah i know so you know, but this wasn't about like, you know, the best music or anything like that. And no diss to dance and electronica at all. This was the one where it caught on quickly and then spread like a virus across people because as soon as they heard it, they had to download it and listen to it over and over and over again. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Simple rhythms and, you know, just very, very basic. Uh, kind of tunes that just lock in and boom, all of a sudden you play it and then you play it to the next person and the next person, next person. And, you know, that R naught is just massive because how quickly it can spread. But when's the last time you recommended an electronica song to somebody? 
<laughs> or maybe it's just because we're old. Well, we're a little bit old, yeah, but I mean, you know, Tay-Tay has her electronic music and, you know, the remixes that you hear in the club. Um, I want you to cast back to when we were, <laughs> when we were young and um, you think about artists like Kylie Minogue, right, that, you know, you'd hear that, you know, I just can't get you out of my head. And, you know, just it's the That's same. That's not electronica. Cute- well, it's it's not quite, but it's in that dance, uh, you know, kind of thing, and, and and especially one that can be just like remixed over and over. But yeah, it, it was electronic music. It's that's the one where people would hear it, and they'd probably hear it in something like a club or something like that, and then that's it. Boom. Now, it doesn't mean that more electronica sounds are downloaded. Okay, so not a ton of electronica music, you know, went out there. It's just that when an electronic music, you know, when a piece got into the zeitgeist, it spread like wildfire. Now, it may have also like burned really hot and then come down. <laughs> ah, so, we built up an immunity to dubstep. Yeah, exactly. So Rosati was talking about this. He said, maybe what it tells us is like who the people are. So, you know, the vulnerable people, right? So it had a higher R not, but only because that community was so tight that that type of music propagated through the electronica community, like as soon as it came out, all that kind of thing. Um, And yeah, all of this was absolutely fantastic. They were able to look at how transmission rates changed over time. um, And they saw that like, you know, you know, niche genres or when artists weren't as big. Um, and so it, it's super cool because we can now use these mathematical models of disease to learn things like, uh, you know, how long you get infected with a song, but it's kind of validated. Like we can use these models and sharpen them to come back and study diseases. So it's absolutely fantastic. So, yep. So the, the, the quickest spreading viral type of music according to this study and keep in mind it was through the united kingdom um was electronica by a mile so oh this is gonna (laughs) affect my tiktok suggestions (laughs) it is it is but keep in mind keep in mind this is how fast it spread not lost not how long it stuck around you know how it bothered the charts nor like um, how quickly it died. So, cause like an epidemic can spring up really hot and then die really quickly too. So it's not, it's not a perfect measure, but it's, it's pretty cool. So the next time you want to want to get a song stuck in somebody's head, listeners, just think, well, I, I've got to say actually from my perspective, Oh my God, I'm going to get hate mail from my fellow Indians, but Yes, yes, that song, Josh, was. You know, we were in Chicago. You could not go to a club and not. (laughs) Exactly. To this day, you remember that tune, (laughs) the Knight Rider Bandra remix. Exactly right. (laughs) Okay. On to the other stories. (laughs) i'm so happy about this i know it's very like basic mathematical stuff but it makes me super happy uh so now that we've talked about one thing spreading virally let's talk about preventing another from doing so uh Um, we got to do the covid stuff don't we josh uh, well we'll we'll build to it uh for example did you know (laughs) have you gotten your flu shot this year i have already yeah so the um, non-controversial one the non-controversial ones. We we do have our own worries about it because, thankfully, influenza did not propagate very well over the southern hemisphere during the what's usually our summer, southern hemisphere's winter. So July, sorry, April, May, all the way to like August, September, we didn't have a lot of flu at all, like Australia. And so there is still a little bit of a worry that we didn't have enough of a sample in order to pick the strains that we need if flu explodes in the Northern Hemisphere this year, but it's well, definitely better. It's, and it's the best prevention. Y- 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. US listeners, you can largely ignore this because you have access to COVID 19 vaccines in your. Simply not getting them. Uh, but for <laughs> our many listeners across the world who may still be at low access to vaccines, uh, yes. good news. According to a study conducted during our pandemic year, the flu vaccine itself may actually offer some minuscule protection against the worst symptoms of COVID-19. Now, again, Yay. this does not mean that it can act as a replacement for a right. COVID vaccine, yes. which is still your best bet against dodging it. But researchers at the University of Miami combed Ooh. the Trinet X datasets that contain records on over 70 million patients and so this was a meta-analysis and identified two, or a cohort analysis, I'm sorry, cohort analysis, okay. and identified right. two groups consisting of about 40,000 people. Patients from these groups were all at some point diagnosed with COVID-19. So every single one of them had COVID-19. Okay. But those belonging to the first of the two groups had taken a vaccine, a flu vaccine, between two weeks and six months before their diagnosis, while mm -hmm. those in the second group did not. So this is just looking at people who did or didn't get their flu shot and how and they all got COVID. So how did getting the flu shot influence it? Right. So the this was a severity study, not an acquisition study. Right. And the study right. period was between January of 2020 and January of 2021, when COVID vaccines were not widely available. Gotcha. After accounting for factors that could affect the risk of COVID-19, including age, gender, smoking, obesity, diabetes, COPD, and all those other fun ones, the researchers found that all other things being equal, patients with a flu shot were less likely to become hospitalized or die after infection with coronavirus. Okay. All right. Nice. Um, so they feel pretty confident that the two groups were similar in terms of comorbidities, but also in terms of their access to health care. Right. So people who did not get a flu shot were over 20% more likely to have been admitted to the intensive care unit for any reason, although this one focused on COVID. They were 58% more likely to visit the emergency department and 58% more likely to have a stroke. So it did not, however, affect the risk of death, just the risk of hospitalization. So again, this okay, is gotcha. not a substitute for the COVID-19 vaccine, but it does appear that getting your flu shot confers some small measure of protection. And, and that's because we know that it can be expanded out because there was a very large sample size, which helps to validate the statistics. Yeah. And this is an interesting kind of superpower of a lot of vaccines, actually. There's data that we have right now, Josh, that, uh, and, and our center, my, the place where I work actually was part of the study, people who got the BCG vaccine, so Bacille, Comet, Guerin, which is the vaccine against tuberculosis, that one seemed to have an effect on acquisition and severity of COVID. Um, we do know that children, for, for our kids who get COVID, around that one year of age mark and right around that four year of age mark, when most of them would get their measles, mumps, and rubella 
and varicella zoster vaccines, which are quite, you know, they're reactogenic. So they, they're more of a chance of giving you like a fever and, and, you know, kind of a reaction. So when around that time, there's a little bit of a drop off in terms of, you know, the, the frequency of kids getting COVID and especially bad COVID. So it does seem that just vaccination in and of itself activates the inflammatory system, kind of readies your T cells in a very non-specific way. So it's kind of like, you know, just putting your dukes up, you know. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm hunting down and I'm trying to gain memory, vaccine memory for the flu virus. But in general, I'm already like, I'm up. I'm, I'm worried for any other attackers coming in. So it, it's not universal. It doesn't happen everywhere. But when we do find these effects, it's not terribly shocking. And it's kind of cool. And it's one of the reasons why we say, okay, well, you know, these vaccinations are good for the individual disease, and they work in tandem as well. Yeah. Um, now, keep in mind, while about 50% of the US and European Union has been vaccinated with at least one dose against COVID. In mm -hmm. developing nations, that may sit at around like one or 2%. So <laughs> in this context, flu shots may actually be the only temporary Band-Aid that the global health community can use to reduce the dangers of COVID. Sure. Okay. But again, not a sub like not a replacement if you have access to it just a good band-aid or temporary fix if you don't plus it'll protect you from the flu equally Yay! important <laughs> absolutely and with respect to influenza again always remember the primary reason for vaccines not to stop you from getting the flu but to stop you from getting severe disease and death from the flu and in that sense absolutely it helps all right, so now that we've talked about needles, let's move off that since nobody wants to deal with needles, but people <laughs> seem remarkably willing to take pills, whether or not they <laughs> may be appropriate. It's it's a very strange, well, no, it's, it's kind of a fair, uh, how do you say, like a, a feeling, right? You know, you come at no, me no, with no, something look, look, that's going to- I will grant, yeah. I will, while I do not, grant them much, I will right. concede that yes. like most people who may be vaccine, you know, hesitant, hesitant yeah. mm -hmm. if I have a choice between a pill or a needle, nobody enjoys yeah. needles. No, no, no. Well, I'm sure there are some, but you know. <laughs> you may enjoy what's in them, but I don't think anybody actively loves needles themselves. So that's true. That's true. Our next story is uh, pretty exciting because we've got a pill that may be ready to treat COVID-19. So an experiment, this is from October 1st, an experimental antiviral pill developed by Merck could have the chances of dying or being hospitalized for those most at risk of contracting severe COVID-19. Mm. Oh, and that's have like H-A-L-V-E not have. Yes. <laughs> it could cut in half. It gives you a 50-50. You get it or you yeah. don't. Or you die from it or you don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> if you have a baseline mortality, it cuts that risk in half. Yeah. Yeah. Or it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what 50-50 means, Santosh. No, no, that's what I... <laughs> I I'm going to shut up because you're, you're just going to bait me and I'm going to end up sad. <laughs> so let's talk about this drug. If it gets uh, emergency use authorization, the mm -hmm. drug is called Molnupiravir, which makes me think of Mjolnir. So really, yeah. the drug can only be handed out to those who are worthy. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about the worthiness in a little bit, yeah. And it is designed to introduce errors into the genetic code of the virus, and it would be the very first oral antiviral medication for COVID-19. Yay! Now, we have oral medications that, you know, baricitinib right now, which are given enterally to treat uh, the disease, but it actually doesn't act on the virus. It acts on your immune system to help you out. So this is a, the first oral antiviral uh, right. So this would possibly. basically slip tiny little condoms onto the virus and prevent it from replicating. 
<laughs> well, it's it's almost I'll I'll use your Mjolnir actual the, the analogy. It actually goes like a little hammer and breaks up the genetic code. Cheek, 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 cheek. Like that. So currently, of course, we have, as you mentioned, Illumiant, uh, as well as the intravenous antiviral remdesivir. Mm-hmm. And, and with you know that questionable. (laughs) As well as the generic steroid dexamethasone, both of which Mm -hmm. are only given once somebody's been hospitalized. Right. And has kind of reached a certain level of illness. Now, the results from the phase three trial were actually so strong that the study was stopped early at the recommendation of outside monitors. And that was, and when they stop a study early, it's either because something really good Or really bad. Really bad, yeah. (laughs) And in this case, it was really good. Yeah. Meaning that, like, please don't go any further because if you have to try to recruit the target number or, you know, wait for a specific, you know, uh, a, a marker to pass by, then we will be withholding this medication from the larger public. So that that's the signal that came up. So a planned analysis of 775 patients in this study looked at hospitalization or death among people at risk for severe disease. And it found that 7% of those given molnupiravir twice a day for five days were hospitalized, only 7%. And okay. of the hospitalized ones, none of them had died by 29 days after treatment. Most mm. of my long-term uh, patients now, I'd say, are in the hospital for about 18 to 20 days, and then they either get well enough that we ship them home with a whole buffet of oxygen, or we do not ship them anywhere. They're celestial discharges. Right, yes, to, to the other planes. Um, now, so that was the 7%. Compared with the placebo patients, 14% of those were hospitalized, uh, and I don't have the numbers on how many had died by 29 days. Uh, but there were eight deaths in the placebo group. Sorry. Uh, eight deaths in the placebo group with 14% of them hospitalized versus only 7% hospitalized in the molnupiravir group with none dead. Very cool. Okay, gotcha. Um, so this, you know, assuming it's affordable, it appears to be safe and effective, but, uh, the study enrolled patients with laboratory confirmed mild to moderate COVID-19. So everyone in the study had COVID, but they were looking specifically for mild non-hypoxic cases, people who did not require oxygen, but were infected because requiring oxygen is what puts you into the hospital. Yes. Uh, and all yeah, these yeah. patients who they recruited had to have had symptoms for no more than five days, but every one of them had at least one risk factor associated with a poor outcome, such as obesity or older age. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So these were, these were not, you know, our healthy 30 something year olds that we, of course, we are seeing now with illness. Um, th- these patients did have comorbidities. Yes. Uh, Viral sequencing of the drug so far shows that molnupiravir is effective against all variants of the coronavirus, including Delta and I believe the new one, Lambda, Mu? Uh, The newest one on our horizon right now is Mu. Yeah. Yeah. So currently it's effective against all variants, but Merck has not released uh, whether there are differences in the effectiveness because they are still... (laughs) in the midst of uh, these studies. Um, yes. Now, it says that molnupiravir is not capable of inducing changes in human cells, but just to be safe, they said any men enrolled in trials had to abstain from intercourse or agree to use contraception, and women yes. of childbearing age could not be pregnant and had to use birth control. So they were not looking at, you know, how does this affect those trying to reproduce? What does it do for the next generation? They're just saying, in people with, you know, at least one health condition that would increase their risk of severity, this drug decreased hospitalization and mortality, or mortality and morbidity. Yes. And it's very important to kind of narrow the field and to be ethical 
not putting you know unborn children at risk uh, with this kind of trial. It, it's super important. So I I very much am happy when you have a a pill like this. So Josh, this is called a nucleoside analog. So what it actually does is you know you have you have like A G C and uh, T right the, your your little uh, nucleosides and then you you for for a virus or RNA you have U uracil in there right so this molnupiravir actually substitutes for those things and it it incorporates that into the RNA and then the RNA is a wow you know <laughs> it gets well, hammered there's yeah, exactly. It's, well, it actually gets catastrophically wrecked because you have this molecule in place instead of A, G, C, or U. And that it's it's non-codable. You can't make proteins out of that. So you just get a dead piece of RNA. And so it, it it's good if it works on the virus. What we absolutely didn't want and, and why we did safety tests and everything first is that yep, Oh, we have RNA polymerases too, right? And, you know, is this specific for viral RNA polymerase or can it hurt ours? And of course, when you're dealing with that kind of thing, you want to make sure that you're not hurting anybody that, you know, can be a genetic descendant. So now we've, I think we've passed that safety profile pretty well, but I'm really glad that for right now, those populations of people who are trying to get pregnant or could have gotten pregnant were excluded. So Merck has said if it does receive approval, it can produce 10 million courses of treatment by the end of 2021, which is coming up. So (laughs) that's pretty quick. Yeah. And the company currently has said they have a U.S. contract, a U.S. government contract to supply about 2 million courses of molnupiravir at a price of $700 per course. Uh, (laughs) Well, look. (laughs) One, yeah. they're still a drug company. We still live sure, in a capitalist sure. society where they are yeah. allowed, if not encouraged, to make a profit. And that's still <laughs> cheaper than remdesivir. Uh, which is 3000 yeah. <laughs> which is 3000 of course. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like, Josh, if these results hold up, the efficacy will actually be a lot better, right? Because even right now, you know, when we're looking at various trials using remdesivir, discovery, act one, act two, all these, we are still ambiguous. And we're ambiguous enough on its efficacy that the CDC here in the United States has said one thing, use it. And the WHO has said, no, it's it's not of use. So I'm really, really hoping that if they decide to, you know, mark up this drug to this price and everything else like this, that this one at least will have clear efficacy and shows that over time, especially, Josh, keeping people out of the hospital, right? Early on, this is something that we can offer um, quickly. Right. So this would be a drug that you would get from your primary care physician, Uh, rather than going to urgent care or avoiding everything entirely and ending up in the hospital. So it's still not going to replace uh, a vaccine is still your best bet, but this could become a wonderful option to at least Mm. slow the tide of COVID patients coming into the ER. Yeah, here's the ideal, you know, good vaccine coverage across the board, but then you have someone like one of these study participants who have comorbidities that still predispose them to having severe disease, you know, even in the face of having vaccine. And now, you know, you have one extra step that they can take in order to prevent getting really sick and going to the hospital and emphasis on the extra. Okay. So absolutely not a substitute for vaccination, especially with these vaccines, which kick all kinds of ass, but uh, now, it's nice to have this option. Now over here in our vaccine nation, mm-hmm. uh, I would say <laughs> the two clear winners have easily been Pfizer and Moderna. At yes, least in the, this country, yeah, uh, the two the two mRNA vaccines and, and abroad as well. When compared to many of the other modalities, their efficacy for preventing severe disease and death, as well as even initial acquisition and mild disease, are kind of head and shoulders above the rest. Where, haha, head and shoulders. <laughs> um, 
But Johnson and Johnson, however, with their sloppy science, (laughs) basically is a little late to the game. But there was another one, AstraZeneca, you may remember. Uh, That was the Chaddox, the British one. Yes. Mm -hmm. And AstraZeneca, while they haven't given up on the vaccine game, they've realized that that's not where they're going to meddle. And so they have continued working on other treatments. And now they're uh, first out of the gate with a new treatment, an antibody injection, not a vaccine, but a antibody injection able to prevent and treat coronavirus made up of two antibodies currently called AZD-7442. Why 42? (laughs) Because it's the answer to COVID, the universe, and everything. (laughs) And Josh, uh, just to let everybody know, there is another company called Regeneron where we have an approved cocktail of two antibodies, uh, Casarivimab and imdevimab that are well approved by the WHO and the CDC to uh, treat uh, or are actually to treat and prevent moderate mild COVID again to stop someone from coming into the hospital. Right now that is reserved for people who have high risk for progression to worse disease. So it's well, not given to everyone. That's this study too. So of right. the 903 people in the trial, or the vast majority of the 903 people in this trial were at high risk of developing severe COVID, including those with multiple health conditions. So this is from the TACL trial, and it showed it was effective. <laughs> Yay! Right? Yeah. It showed it was effective in preventing severe disease in non-hospitalized patients mm-hmm. with mild to moderate, uh, there's that moderate, when compared with a placebo, a single dose, again, not a vaccine. No, a single dose given by injection managed to reduce the risk of developing severe COVID or death by 50% when compared with a placebo in people who had been symptomatic for a week or less. So you've already caught it. So this would be, I guess the equivalent of Tamiflu if Tamiflu was a shot. Well, the so molnupiravir is actually much more so like a, a Tamiflu. Mm-hmm. Um, this one being an antibody infusion, there's there's a handful of what we call hyperimmune globulins or monoclonal antibodies for infectious diseases, where you know it's it's the same kind of thing. Um, I think the best thing is before we found out that it was not a viable option. We were collecting convalescent plasma. Remember this, Josh? We were collecting convalescent plasma from people who had gotten sick with COVID in the hopes that we could administer that to other people. And we found out that, unfortunately, that that was not a successful prevention. But then if you purify out a monoclonal antibody and you you specifically use you know this one or that one so the Regeneron two antibody cocktail or this antibody cocktail from AstraZeneca, then you know you actually can like latch onto the virus and get them. So it's not an antiviral in that sense. It's a biologic. It's it's donation or infusion or transfusion of antibody. So this one, again, would have to be administered in a physician office, maybe an urgent care setting, and Mm -hmm. the vaccine is meant to prevent you from getting COVID entirely, whereas the AstraZeneca antibody infusion, as well as the Merck pill, are meant to be given to people who have got COVID, but have been symptomatic for under a week and have mild symptoms without hypoxia even if they have other high-risk conditions like heart disease, COPD, diabetes, old age, or obesity. Right. And in fact, for this particular infusion, especially if they have those comorbidities. Right. So this is billed as, you know, if you're unable to have a regular vaccination or you've responded poorly, such as with Guillain-Barre or something Mm -hmm. like that, or you have health conditions, as we've listed, that put them at a particular risk of serious illness. Right. Um, There is also those immunocompromised populations. So our transplant recipients who are on immunosuppressants who actually don't respond well to the vaccine, not in terms of having an adverse effect, but they don't mount immunity as well as they should. And, you know, this is a great tool for uh, treating them as well. 
Um, I should say, you know, I, I mentioned Regeneron before. There are other companies such as Eli Lilly, GlaxoSmithKline, and uh, uh, oh, sorry, Eli Eli Lilly and GlaxoSmithKline with their partner Veer. Those guys have likewise come up with antibody cocktails that are approved for emergency use in the United States for the same kind of application. So AstraZeneca, I think, is doing a great job kind of joining this because the more of an arsenal we have, the better. So I don't mean to bait you, but full Mm. results from the tackle trial are set to be submitted for publication soon in a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, huge. <laughs> we got to we got to wait for those just to let everybody know the benchmark that we're looking for that, okay? So Regeneron and GlaxoSmithKline showed 72% protection against symptomatic infection and then uh, 79% reduction in the risk of hospitalization with the GlaxoSmithKline um, or, or death due to any cause. So somewhere in the 70% risk reduction mark is what we're shooting for there, AstraZeneca. So that is it for this week, the first of our pandemic updates. But uh, next week when we come back, it's going to be spooky spooky season well it's still spooky season but next week when we come back is uh, one of my favorite annual episodes the halloween episode Ooh, yes 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 this is it's kind of our uh our bookend we have our halloween episode to introduce the season and our you know comic book medicine to usually close out the season yeah unless of course we have to dress up and eat candy Yeah, here's hoping, you know, fingers tight, cross tight that we get our vaccine rates up and that our kids can get vaccinated and that we can safely go out and some regard trick-or-treating. And until then, I'll leave you with a spooky story. And this will be a scary story for the TikTok generation. Oh, okay, okay. Ready? Ready? Yeah, yeah. In the olden days, in the beginning of the internet, Or in the beginning of going online, when you turned the internet on, it used to scream. (gasps) No. (laughs) 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 Yep, that's right. You used to be able to cause the internet severe pain, and I just sent all of our older listeners into a flight (laughs) of panic-induced nostalgia. Yeah, Josh, you should have put a trigger warning at the beginning of this. I mean, that was, you know... Uh, that was harsh. <laughs> Little kids aren't going to understand that. I mean, like, you know, you just turn on your phone and the internet's there in your hand. They didn't know the pain of hearing, <laughs> of hearing uh, the singularity. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> the singularity being achieved. The internet was waking up, screaming in agony as millions of people signed on to <laughs> look for mail and porn and very <laughs> slow downloading pictures. <laughs> Some some of us were trying to get information. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> Creepy. So Creepy. that's it for this week. As mm. always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, get a shot. And when you've done all of that, find a country that's open and happy travels. Bye, everybody. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 